We are back for another episode of the Grease and Glamour podcast. And I'm going to bring this Grease and Glamour music down. And I'm actually going to replace it. Because this is something I've always wanted to do. And now I get a chance to do it. And I'll have a reason behind it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, 3 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon here in Rochester, New York. The weather is chilly, but it is oh so warm in here. And we are listening to the great sounds of Jeff Tysick, Stride With Ease, a 1980 jazz classic. And today we have with us in studio Grammy Award winner Jeff Tysick, and he told me not to tell him what I was going to do, so... <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Welcome, Jeff. (laughs) Thank you. Man, you know, the last time I listened to that, I have to say it was probably 35 years ago. Oh, this is... I was listening to a bunch of your music over the last (laughs) couple weeks, and I love this song. That's actually my very first album I recorded here. Really? Yeah. Right here in Rochester. Yeah. Wow. PCI recording. Not around anymore, but it's... I remember PCI. 1979. I think is when I actually did the first recording of this and later Capitol Records took it and it came back out in 80. Did PCI also do uh, video too? Because I think yeah, we did it. We shot did. a commercial there. My father shot a commercial. They started off PCI. just as a recording studio and then they became kind of a sound stage and on, on a kind of a small scale. But yeah. yeah, they were doing a lot of commercials there. Oh, they were like off of East Avenue or something. Well, uh, oh no, uh, Atlantic, um, Atlantic Avenue. Okay. So, uh, see. Oh, so surprise. I am uh well I am so excited for this podcast because Jeff Tyzik is I could say he's a friend but actually I can say he's like a cousin. <laughs> I think we we we've gone to brother now. Oh brother, okay. All right. Well, upgraded. Well, yeah. Uh we have to I want Jeff to tell that story cuz uh, if he remembers it how oh, yeah. the cousin brother thing came about. Well, the cousin thing came about when uh, I was here with uh, my wife Jill. And we bought an A4 and, uh, you know, we picked it out and you got it all ready. And she came in to get it and you had a bouquet of flowers on the windshield outside with a little uh, note that said, from Cousin Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the Cousin Mark thing is uh, I've used, you know, I am to, to many people cousin Mark, uncle Mark, brother Mark, because when a lot of our customers, when their kids would go to college and they take their cars, I would tell them, listen, if you have to go somewhere for repairs in one of these cities that you're not familiar with, tell them that you have an uncle that owns a car shop. So that way they won't, uh, they'll think twice before they try to sell you something that you don't need or something like that. So, uh, I used to get some phone calls going, yeah, are you Uncle Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, you became Brother Mark. Then I graduated to Brother way. Mark. That's you, awesome. You saved the day. This is unbelievable. I was in New York, uh, actually, with my daughter, Jamie, and Jill was in town, but Jamie and I were having a, a big meeting about a music project we were doing, and I had uh, a BMW at the time, an X3. Three. Yep, X3, yep. And... Uh, so we were leaving New York at the end of the day, uh, and we were driving up to Westchester where Jamie lives, and I was on the Major Deegan Expressway, and all of a sudden- Like rush hour. And it was about a quarter to five, 20, actually it was about 4.30, and I'm stepping on the gas, and all of a sudden nothing's happening. Ugh. And my daughter says, uh, Dad, uh, 
you better get off this thing. And, and all of a sudden, the car started to work. And I said, well, I, I, I don't even know where we are. We're somewhere in the Bronx. I mean, let, let's keep going. And then all of a sudden, there's nothing happening. Oh. And I see uh, this little triangle on the side where there's an up ramp. And then there's then you're on the expressway with the four lanes wide. So I said, well, let me just nurse it over under the triangle. And then that's the end of that. And, and all these lights came on. And I'm like, oh, man, what is happening? So I, I, uh, I said, look, Jill's like, well, we got to look in the manual. I said, forget that. So I called Universal. <laughs> called brother, Mark. <laughs> well, I think I got Mike first. And Mike was like, oh, yeah, that means uh, I think it's the uh, water pump. or there, there was something that he thought it was. And I said, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm sitting here in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere in the sense that I'm in the middle of 9 million people in right. cars. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was just before rush hour. And, and I, I got out of the car and I walked Jill and Jamie down. There was nobody coming up the up ramp. And I got them down on the, on the street level. I said, look, take an Uber and go to Westchester. I'm yeah. going to figure this out. So then you called me and said, look, uh, get a tow. And I want you to tow it to this dealer yep, in, in uh, New Jersey yep. that I work with. Well, what I didn't realize is when, when you get a tow, first of all, like you're not calling AAA. Yeah. In New York. It's not Rochester. Well, in New York, if it's an expressway, you're calling the police. They have one designated tow firm that's going to tow you. Yep. And you said, okay. Get the tow and ask the guy to take you, you know, to Paramus, yep. you know, even if you have to pay him a little extra, right. whatever the story. And you said, I, I have a, Gunter, yep. your dad, yep. told you, we want to buy this Q5 anyway, buy the car right. and let Tyzik drive it back to Rochester. Right. <laughs> so the guy comes with, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there 45 minutes now, like it is jammed. Nobody's showing up. So I see way in the distance, these police lights on, you know, mm -hmm. and finally a, a police car comes up next to me. He said, are you the guy that called in? I said, yeah, 45 minutes ago. He goes, oh, we just wanted to make sure you were really here before we sent the tow truck. Oh boy. Oh jeez. So now <laughs> another 40 minutes, big truck comes, guy hooks my car up and I, and I said, can you take me to the premise? He goes, no way. He says, <laughs> I'm only allowed to take you three quarters oh. of a mile off the expressway. So he drops me at some like gas station that is just, I mean, it's a convenience store with the gas tanks, you know, and I'm sitting there and now I call AAA. Right. So it's another hour and a half. Ugh. So finally the guy comes, he said, well, I can only, well, it turned out that the dealer you were sending me to has two locations. There's yep. the, they have uh, upper saddle the, river and Paramus. Yeah. Well, what they have is, well, in this particular area, they've got that's the right. showroom. That's right. They have two. Yep, that's right. And then they have the repair place. Yes. So I had to pick up the car. I had to drop the car at the repair place and then pick up the car at the showroom. So it was two different locations. Uh oh Which is fine, you know. So finally, I, I finally got the car. And, uh, you know, so now it, it's 11 o'clock at night. And so I drove it to Westchester. We used it for the weekend. And on the way home to Rochester, I, I was in the car with uh, Jill. We're driving back. And I said, yeah, it's a pretty cool car. I said, why don't we just buy this one? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you saved the day. I don't know who would ever do anything like that. Well, you know. By the way, it, on a weekend. Yeah. Well, first of all, I appreciate that. And it's kind of just ingrained into me that whenever... Whenever something, a challenge comes up like that, I, I look at it as 
here's my opportunity to to shine or to mm-hmm. try and help somebody out or help the situation because one of the things I will I will tell people out there is that uh, having really good uh, doing business the proper way with people pays off and this dealer that I was dealing with this guy I've been buying cars for him for years but he's just a sales manager there I mean he's not the owner of the dealership mm. he doesn't really have the authority to make uh, big decisions like hey I'm gonna buy this car take my word for it I'll send you a check I mean mm-hmm. and we're not you know there's also the way you do business in Rochester which that might sound a little more reasonable and then there's a the way you do business in New Jersey which may not be quite as uh, not everybody's as trusting, trusting. <laughs> but you know I called him up I said and of course, you know, I have got a name drop a little bit. I'm like, this is Jeff Tyzik. He's a Grammy Award winner. I mean, come on. We got to take care of him. I said, you've got this Q5 there. We want to buy it. Um, we're going to send a check down. Uh, just trust us. Trust me. I'm a car salesman. That's always my fa- famous line. Um, and uh, and he put the keys, I think, in the tailpipe. Well, that's or- what I got to tell you. That blew my mind. Because I said to you, I said, I'm on the phone with you. Mark, it's going to be after business hours. How are we going to, they're going to leave it in the, with a place where there's an awning, and the keys will be in the tailpipe <laughs> in Paramus, New Jersey. Yeah, and I'm thinking that I'm going to be there, but that car's not yeah. going to be sitting there. But there were the keys in the tailpipe, and uh, and they even they even allowed us to use one of their dealer plates, and yeah. they did the whole thing for us. So, you know, kudos to to uh, Jack Daniels Audi for helping us out there, but. Um, so then Jeff, yeah, t- took the car and came back. And uh, I mean, I'd be lying if it wasn't in the back of my head that that might be a car that Jeff will be interested in buying when he gets <laughs> Even, even so, I mean, who, you know, we, I've been doing business, I think, with you for 20, 25 oh, years yeah. at least. But who would do that? You know, I mean, that was amazing what you did. And I, I really appreciate it. And uh, so you, you went from cousin to brother. Overnight. All right. I like it. That's awesome. <laughs> I can't go much further than brother. So no, I think let's I, see. No, no, I don't think so. So, um, well, anyway, Jeff agreed to come in and talk to us on the podcast. And I think it's awesome because even though it's, uh, you know, our podcast is loosely based on car stuff today, we're going to kind of veer off a little bit, talk about my other passion, which is music. And, uh, a lot of people really don't know your history. They know that you, and, and by the way, I I need to tell people this, Jeff is such a humble guy and such a just awesome guy that he always says, oh, you know, it's, I talked to him about his, you know, his, uh, his career and his success, but he always kind of seems to downplay it when you talk to him. But every time he walks out of here, there's a customer going, is that Jeff Tyzik? <laughs> and I say, yep, that's Jeff Tyzik. Um, but, you know, Jeff, uh, reading your bio and, and thinking about, I love those sort of stories, how you, and maybe you can touch on it, but I'll just set it up. Early age, you see a parade, yeah. you get into playing the trumpet. Yeah. And you fast forward a little while, then you're at Eastman. You meet Chuck Mangione. Mm-hmm. You do some stuff with Chuck. You more time goes on, and now you're a Grammy Award winner uh, who has produced and worked with the likes of Doc Severinsen, and and I think you still talk to Doc. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's ninety ninety three now. Yeah, maybe you can. Uh, Actually, just, my daughter's his manager. 
Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is he still, well, he's still doing gigs, he right? He was, last April, he was here, a uh, uh, wonderful young guy, Carl Stabnow, uh, who years ago was a student, a high school performer who got a chance to play with the RPO on a series I was doing, who now works with Mark Iacona at the International Jazz Festival. He's a wonderful young musician, uh, but also a promoter. So he promoted a concert with a, a big band he put together with Doc Severinsen last April. So Doc was here. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who don't know who Doc Severinsen is, he he kind of became popular, I guess, amongst just, you know, people that don't follow, you know, big band or, or, or music uh, and a little show called The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Right. So for 25 uh, yeah, years. Right, right. So yeah. um, he he was uh, the music director, I guess, if you will, of that uh, and conductor of The Tonight Show band. Right. Um, so maybe you can walk us through that beginning you know, in Hyde Park, when you see the bugle, yeah, uh, you the buglers or the trumpeters, and then how you get to where you are now. Well, I saw a, a drum and bugle corps down the street, and my birthday was coming up, and, uh, you know, I, I love the sound of it. And my mom said, well, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want a bugle, a bugle, because they were real bugles they played. They weren't trumpets. They were yeah. bugles. Okay. And uh, so my birthday came, and there was a little case. I opened it up. And there was this thing, it looked like a bugle, but it had these buttons on it. And I started crying. It was like, that's not a bugle. It was a cornet, you know. But I, I started in uh, taking private lessons right away, kind of when I was in third grade, which is pretty young. So I was way ahead of everybody else. And uh, so I, was, I ended up being the best player in the, the, the band. But I learned something in sixth grade. I learned three things about music that were very important. First thing I learned was uh, I played uh, a solo with the band in the final concert of the year, and it was called Johnny Learns to Play. And it was this little, you know, kind of novelty piece where you, you uh, purposely sound bad in the beginning. And then okay. at the end, you play this oh, stuff, yeah. and, you know, you yeah. sound really good. So at the end of that piece, you know, people applauded. I mean, it was, it was you know, crazy. And the thought that I had was, it wasn't like, oh, I'm so great. It was like, Wow. This makes people happy. Yeah. So that was one thing I learned. Second thing I learned was through music, you can meet some interesting people. So that same year, um, we had an elementary school marching band, which is kind of, you know, usually you don't get that till high school. But our teacher had gone to Michigan State, and she was a crazy, you know, marching band person. So anyway, we were going to march in the uh, uh, Memorial Day Parade. And the night before, she called me. I lived in Hyde Park, New York, which is uh, uh, 75 miles north of New York City. Poughkeepsie area. Yeah, right. around Poughkeepsie. And she called me and said, you know, at the Roosevelt Mansion tomorrow, there's a service at the graveside, and they want a young trumpet player to play taps at the end of the service. Would you be willing to do it? I said, oh, yes, Miss Holloway, I'll be happy to do it. So the next morning, I'm outside in my case, and these American Legion guys pick me up and drive me over. So I walk back to the gravesite. And there are four guys standing there in military uniforms with, you know, a chest full of medals. There's an honor guard, Eleanor Roosevelt, wow. and her son, John, wow. and wow. me. Wow. So that was pretty amazing experience. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so I realized, okay, you can meet some really interesting people yeah. in, in music. And I've gone on, you know, I've met many great artists that I've worked with and also, you know, President Ford and, you know, I've, I've gotten to meet some pretty interesting people. So, and then the third thing I learned was 
um, all during high school, um, I worked at a car wash for a dollar five an hour, either oh. wiping the cars down, and then when I got a license, I could actually drive them out, you know, and mm-hmm. do the windows <laughs> and yep. stuff. And I got a dollar five an hour. Nice. So I, I had. <laughs> I had a little band. My brother played drums. I played trumpet. And this guy played a thing called Cordovox. Okay. Which it looks like an accordion, yeah. but it was a Hammond B3 in the box, basically. Yeah. So we just That's got cool. the, we got together and played tunes. And then one day he said, you know what? Two weeks from now, what are you guys doing on Friday night? I said, you know, nothing. I, I think I was about 14. He said, well, I got us a job in a bar. Well. We're going to play two hours. We're going to make $15 each and get pizza and something to drink. And I thought, well, maybe you can make money at music. (laughs) So that was all within that short time period. Uh, But I I really loved music. I was able to express myself and my emotions. And uh, it was was just kind of a a thrilling thing for me because it's all about self-worth. If you apply yourself you get better and there's a sense of uh, importance about that, that you can control your own destiny. If you put yourself really into something, it's going to reward you in many ways, which is why I think music is such a great thing for, mm-hmm. for anybody, but especially for young kids. Right. Um, so, you know, basically I, I just kind of kept getting better, had great experiences. And um, I, my, I said to my band director, well, well I, you know, I want to go into music. And he said, okay, well, you should go to Fredonia mm-hmm. and become a band director. But I had a friend of mine who was a few years older than me who had gone to a place called the Eastman School of Music. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and he kept writing me letters saying, you know, you should come here. It's a great school. And we have, you know, this guy, Chuck Mancioni, who's teaching jazz. Now, here. was Eastman a big school you just weren't aware of it or were they not really a well-known music school at that time no it was a one of the major conservatories of the world okay but it was just out of my scope, of scope and, and yeah. my band director had gone to fredonia sure. and and you know it was a whole other thing i had i had no idea what eastman even was yep so my friend said well you need to you need to come up here and audition and this is where you should come plus back then uh, universe, uh, Fredonia state school for the whole year. And this is in 69 was $750. Oh my wow. goodness. But yeah, but you also only made a dollar five at the car. Right. <laughs> but, but the Eastman school of music was $2,600. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was so more than four it, times. Yeah, 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 okay. Wow. So, um, uh, I got on it. I got it. I sent a letter in and I got, like a time to come up here and it was April and in Poughkeepsie where the train is, it's 60 degrees. I'm like, Oh, okay. So I had some little coat on my case and a little bag with some clothes. You know, I was gonna be here for a couple of days. I got off the train at the train station in Rochester. It was a blizzard. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm walking through this blizzard to the school. What a difference. 200 miles. (laughs) Exactly. And this guy, Chris Vidal, he just passed recently. He was one of my best friends in the world. Amazing person. As a matter of fact, I, most of what I'm doing today, I wouldn't have done without him taking an interest in me as a high school kid. You know, he was, he was kind of like an older brother. But anyway, he gave me a tour of the Eastman School for two hours, and it literally started in the boiler room. Oh. Oh, wow. And then we ended up two hours later standing on the Eastman Theater stage, which I stand on All regularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I walked in that building, and just something spoke to me and said, this is where you belong. 
And that's how I ended up coming here. Crazy, you know, crazy quirk of fate. All right. Well, we're going to keep talking about this stuff, but we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to do pay some bills with some ads, and then we're going to come back and find out a little bit more about Jeff's career and where we are here today. Because what a lot of people don't realize also is that Jeff uh, is not just the principal pops conductor here in Rochester. He's also Dallas, Detroit, Oregon. Mm Mm-hmm. What Florida. am I missing? Florida? Florida Orchestra. Yeah, I've got a Florida story because I got to see, <laughs> I I got to see Jeff down in <laughs> okay. Florida. So we'll be back just in a minute and uh, we'll keep talking. Car repairs can get expensive. That's why Universal Imports has got you covered with their exclusive Car Care Club. For an annual investment of just $49, you can save hundreds with a free New York State inspection, $10 off oil changes, 10% off labor, $50 off alignments, and so much more. Visit UniversalImports.com or visit 834 Linden Avenue, right off 441. Let my family take care of your family's automobiles. Visit UniversalImports.com to join our Car Care Club today. Mole Tool is the official sponsor of the Grease and Glamour podcast. Established in 1853, Mole Tool has grown to become a recognized leader in lubricant technology. Racing teams around the world have trusted Mole Tool to deliver the endurance and performance needed to compete at the highest level. Even if you're not racing on the track, Mole Tool's full range of synthetic lubricants will protect your engine against wear and tear of your daily commute. Stop by Universal Imports to purchase Mole Tool's line of products today. Coming back now. This is another one of Jeff's classics. It's called Smile. Yeah. I like it. It does make oh, you smile. Oh, it does. <laughs> Honestly, the um, I could picture this being like the soundtrack to my life. Just happy when everything's going good. It's yeah, not always like... In a while either. Oh, it's <laughs> great. It's you on trumpet, right? Right. Yeah, and I think that might be actually my friend Chris Vidala on saxophone. And you did all the arrangements of the music as well at that yeah, time? I, I had a band. We kind of all worked together in the studio. I mean, we came in with written out music, and then we kind of, you know, you, you make it happen in the studio. So I had wonderful guys, uh, Bob Stein, who worked with comedian Robert Klein for years. Oh, he yeah. Went to U of R. He Love played Robert in the Klein. U of R jazz ensemble when I was the student director of it. You know, he, he became a, a, a fan. And uh, bass player Mike Boone, uh, oh. who went to Eastman. Uh, and then Mark Manetta, great guitar player from Rochester, who passed away a number of years ago, but I played with him for years. So, you know, it's interesting when, when you talk to different musicians and how they've written their music, how their works come out. Obviously, they collaborate with other artists. Uh, and, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, at least make a nod in my next podcast about the passing of Neil Peart from Rush because he was a huge influence on me. That band was a huge influence on me growing up. Uh, one of the reasons why I love rock and roll was Rush. I mean, just yeah. what a great, great band. But what was very interesting about Rush was Neil Peart, even though he wasn't the original drummer of Rush, but he came early on and was the big part of their success. He would write the lyrics to most of their songs then getty lee and alex lifeson would go off and write music and use the use the lyrics and the poems that that 
Neil would give them and kind of use that as the inspiration for the music. Then they'd send the music back to Neil. Neil would orchestrate the drums parts to it. And that's how they'd piece it all together. So often they wrote these songs, they weren't even together. They just kind of bounced this stuff between each other, Mm -hmm. came up with ideas and then went in together and sort of crafted it. Well, that's that studio experience, which I mean, I did for many, many years, but now it's a, it's an interesting experience in a different way because you stand on a podium with 75 musicians and even if the music's all written out you're all making it happen right when well, you conduct an orchestra you know that, this is one of the thing. things that so you know i understand the the purpose of a of a conductor and it's it's always so amazing to me how intently the musicians are watching you for their cue i mean they have the music in front of them so they mm-hmm. know what they have to play but it's a matter of the the actual like when this punches when this when this is supposed to, um, there's different words for it, I'm sure. But when the when, when the, the music build comes yeah. up, when the yeah. when the fade, um, you the, know, yeah, there are there are these moments when they it. really need you. There are the moments yeah. where they need you, but there's also a moment where they are they're all communicating with each other, and you're part of it. But one of the things, one of the best things to do is not to try to always control that, but to sort of uh, invite that inspiration from the musicians it's it's a tricky position to be in how do you i've seen you when you've come in for you know you've come in to to get something done on your car and you're in the waiting room and you're working on stuff on your computer and you've got your headphones on and Mm. i i always wonder when i listen to uh, uh, any orchestrated music you know when there's an orchestra playing it uh, when you take a composer and they sit down at the piano or whatever instrument they start building the song off of and then where do you go? All right, this is going to be the cello part. And this is, I want these strings here and I want these wind instruments here. And uh, that is amazing to me. How do you build that? Well, you know, from your, all of your training uh, years of learning your own instrument and then playing in ensembles and hearing, Oh, you know what the flutes sound like the clarinets, the violas, the cellos, different percussion instruments, brass, and you sort of, develop over time what these sounds are that work well together. Um, And then as a composer, or in in my case, composer, orchestrator, or arranger, depending on which which hat I'm wearing on what day, um, as I start to work on a piece, I just I'll, I'll hear that sound in my head. Now, yeah, that this this should be this instrument. But like, let's say let let's say there's a there's a horn section piece, but not not every player is going to be playing the same notes even. Right. They're going to, and that's where it gets crazy because I I know playing guitar and I'm just, I'm an amateur guitar player, but you know, when I try to, I'll record stuff at home and I'll try to find harmony notes to go with things to kind of come up with some cool sounds. It's, it's tricky. You really have to know music theory and, or is it, I don't know, is it music theory or is it? It's part of it is intellect. Yeah. Which is understanding chord structures and theory and, but part of it's inspiration. Just what do you feel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way I think of it is if you take like a, a big painting that has beautiful colors on it. Well, I think of uh, sounds of an instrument as a color Mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a musical color. Right. And it's, it's an aural 
A-U-R-A-L, color. Yeah. And I'm making a picture, I'm painting a picture with sound. Yeah. That's kind of how I think of it. So, and within, let's take the instrument that you play. Just take a guitar, for instance. Well, there's no such thing as a guitar. There's 12 string, there's classical, there's nylon strings, right. there's, there's steel kind of, yep. strings, there's electric with <clears throat> distortion, without distortion. Yep. I mean, every one of those is a color. So you're not going to take some ballad and then crank your amp and get distortion <laughs> coming out. You're crank gonna, it to 11, yeah. baby. <laughs> you're going to pick the right sound for right. the right piece. Yep. Which is the same thing I do, except I've got like everything from a piccolo to a tuba. Mm -hmm. to deal with and sometimes i am marrying a rock band with an orchestra yes. i mean there are all these possibilities so they're all what i call musical colors and how do you make that tapestry work together you know it's something you learn how long does it take you to write a piece or compose a piece sometimes i can think about something for months mm -hmm. And I know I want to do it. I'm just not moved. I can't figure out. I might be static for a long time and then write an entire piece in three days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So huh. it, and sometimes I'll work on something for a long time. I wrote recently uh, a few years ago, a, a, a jazz violin concerto, which is kind of a little different for an orchestra to play yeah. a jazz violin, but yeah. we premiered it here with Juliana Theater. I saw your interview. You had a little interview with her. Uh -huh. uh, it was on the RPO uh, YouTube channel or okay. on their website. Yep. So I, I spent, uh, probably four or five months writing that piece. I mean, I, I didn't do it every day, but I, it, it took a while for it to gel and then I, I would do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote, uh, I'm, I'm creating a lot of pops, uh, concerts for orchestra now, really kind of interesting ones. One of them is, uh, the Beatles revolution concert oh. and it's, 28 different Beatles songs with visuals. We're going to, I think we're going to do it in Rochester uh, next season, but I, I ended up doing 20, uh, 28 or 26 Beatles songs. And I tried to keep them as authentic as possible, but also to make them a, a little bit symphonic without really ruining the original intent of the music. Yeah. <laughs> and that probably took uh, about two months to do those arrangements, which is kind of pretty quick for that much material. Yeah. And then yeah. I ended up doing a Motown show, same concept, uh, using an instrumentation that fits Motown instead of a full symphony. I mean, I'm sorry, but there weren't bassoons in the Motown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I have a, I like a trumpets, trombones, saxophones, French horns, percussion and strings, and then a cool rhythm section. So it's a little more of what I call a symphonic rock orchestra. Okay. Uh, and so typically those kinds of uh, projects take me a couple months to create a whole concert. Um, but sometimes if I'm working on an original piece, I might be thinking about it for five months before I put a note down and then, and sometimes it might just be a struggle and I, I might try to write something every day for a month and a half and nothing comes out that I like and I just tear it up and forget about it and move on. So well, <laughs> it's never, it's never a, and it's never the same. One of the things that you hear uh, people talk about when, when they talk about Jeff Tyzik and his work is that uh, even though, I mean, pops has, has been around since like the 20s or something, right? Uh, pops orchestrated music. I think the Boston Pops made it a pretty... Late 20s, really early 30s. Yeah. Popular. Yeah. But, you know, Rochester, I, I think that the people that, that can appreciate it, they realize it, but a lot of people may not. That we have 
a conductor um, here that is really an innovator. So this is why you are in all these other orchestras because you are this dynamic presence for for pops music. Mm. So it's not really pops as usual with Jeff Tyzik, I don't think. Well, the reason for that is that I think uh, music should have integrity. So, you know, in, in the classical world, you, you put a Beethoven symphony on the music stand, there's integrity. You know, we know yeah. it's been around for hundreds of years and, and there's a history behind it. But as Duke Ellington said, there are only two kinds of music in the world, good and bad. <laughs> and within the popular music format, there is a lot of fantastic music. Uh, you know, I have a show called Women Rock. Mm -hmm. And... Yep. It's got such great music on I me. Mean, one of my favorite songs of all times is These Dreams. I just love that, oh, that song. Heart, right? Is it? Yeah, Heart. heart. Yeah. So I, I created a concert of music like that. And what was interesting is that those bands did not use orchestra, but they used all these synthesizers to make it sound like orchestra. They used string sounds and brass sounds. And I just said, well, I'm going to take that concept, but I'm going to have real people play those parts instead of a synthesizer. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I can be true to the music, but elevate the experience. Yeah. So to me, it's all about integrity. Uh, whatever it is, if it's a Motown or if it's a Latin show or if it's gospel music, whatever it is, I want it to be done as well as it possibly can be done and have meaning and feel like it has the uh, importance that it deserves for the kind of art that it is. That's my whole mission. So I, I take things very seriously. So how do you, so you spent some time working with Chuck Mangione, mm -hmm. Mangione, I yeah. guess. Mangione. Uh, and uh, you worked on producing a couple of his albums, yep. right? Did you five, five play projects on with some, him. Play and on I them? did, yeah. Played I played on, on Children of Sanchez, Live at the Hollywood Bowl, Main Squeeze, uh, a couple other ones. I don't and know. then you... From there, I'm, I'm sure there's some time in between that I, I don't quite know what happened, but how do you get then into the mix out in California? You know, here, yeah. here you are, a, a New York guy. Yeah. You're out in California now working with Doc Severinsen uh, and those folks. How do you get from here to there? It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Connection in the world is everything. Connection. Mm -hmm. I go to Eastman, and my I was a pretty good trumpet player, and... Uh, in the freshman year, you know, you're in the freshman band and everything. And then the next year you think, man, I'm going to get into the, the higher up band. <laughs> so I, I go a week early my sophomore year to be a big brother to the new kids coming in. Okay. And I'm walking downstairs to where the practice rooms are. And I hear this trumpet playing. And it's nobody that I've ever heard that was at the school. And my heart dropped. I said, I don't know if I'm going to get in the higher up band this year. <laughs> and it was this guy, Al Vizzuti, like who is one of the most phenomenal trumpet you players. You know, you say that I'm picturing that movie whiplash. I don't know yeah, if you saw that, but, I, movie, but I'm but picturing yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So this guy, he's like one of the most phenomenal players on, on planet earth. And he's actually, we're almost brothers. We're, we're, I love the guy. We've, we've done albums to get, we've done all kinds of things together. Anyway, when he was in high school, Doc Severinsen came to Missoula, Montana, where he lived, because <laughs> Alan's father owned a music store and brought Doc in, and he took Alan to Doc's hotel room 
one morning because Doc said he would listen to him. They open the door and Doc is sitting there in his shorts, you know, <laughs> on the bed. And Alan plays and Doc goes nuts, you know, loves, ends up loving him. So fast forward, you know, 10 years later, um, Alan leaves the Eastman School. I mean, he finishes his degree. He goes on to tour the world with Chick Corea. Wow. And he calls me one day and says, you know, Doc, you know, because he's still in touch with Doc, said, Doc asked me to write a piece for him. And I don't have time to write the whole thing. Could you and I collaborate on the piece? I said, yeah. So um, we end up writing, collaborating on this piece together. And then Alan is off in Europe with Chick Corea. And Doc is going to play this somewhere in Texas. And I go down to be there at the, in case anything goes wrong. And I'm hiding in the back of the auditorium. And Doc goes, they start playing the, this brand new piece. And he stops the whole thing and says, is Jeff Tysak here? And I'm like, I raise my hand and says, get up here on stage. I want you sitting next to me as I play this piece. <laughs> and I'm going like, man, this better work. You know? <laughs> so I, I, it worked. Yeah. And later that night, Doc and I were over at his hotel. And so what year, what year is this, this around? This is uh, 77 yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, 77. Height of the Tonight Show? Or, yes. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this big time. So we sit, or, we go to his hotel room afterwards and we talk for five hours. And he tells me all these things that he wants to do, including recording the Tonight Show band. And we ended up doing every one of them. So I met Doc through Alan Vizzuti in a, because Alan met him in a hotel room in Missoula, Montana. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> well, you know, they you always hear the thing. You know, you're at the you're, you're at the right place at the right time. And there is some there is something to that, of course. But you have to be willing to be at a lot of places uh, to eventually and hopefully get into those connections because yeah. there are many times, you know, where I just know things that in my career that I've, that I think, wow, I almost didn't go to that meeting. Right. And if I hadn't went to that meeting, I would have, would not have met this person or, mm -hmm. or this or that. And then the connection that could have been made. So yes, right place at the right time. It, there is something to that, but you have to also be willing to be at a lot of places so that you can get those moments. You can grab those moments. Yep. You never know where things are going to lead. So if you have the strength uh, and wherewithal, you you should, you know, look up, take every opportunity. Uh, you never know where it's going to go. By you the way, Al is a car freak. He always has been. Oh. And he's driving now an Audi, like a black coupe, a two-door coupe. I, I I don't know which model it is. Is it oh. A5 maybe or You know, something? Jeff, I can be someone else's brother too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's car crazy. Wow. Guy. It's um, it's just, I love those stories. I, I love to find out how, you know, how people get to where they are. And it's always, a, it's usually an interesting story. It is. And um, I have to say recently... I've met two young people, both from that experience where I had high school kids come and play with the orchestra. And they both have said to me that I made a difference in their life, which really touched me. And you don't think about things like that, but um, it's, again, you never know what's going to happen. I, I kind of think of life uh, and those experiences. I mean, kind of my metaphor is, you know, you're standing, you go to Menden Ponds. Okay. Yep. You go out yep. to Men and Ponds and it's a clear, beautiful day, kind of in May. It's not too warm, not too cold, with no wind. It's beautiful. Shrubs are up, trees, and the lake is 
just crystal and it's just calm. And you take a rock, you throw it out into the lake, and you never can tell where the waves end. They just keep right, going. Right, they just keep mm-hmm. going, yeah. right. And that's kind of how I think about experiences in life. You, right. You never know where it's going to go. Right. And how many people you're going to touch or, yep. or, or even on a, in a negative. You know, if you do something sure. bad, sure. you know, how, it can have the some major effects. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Um, so we w- I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about the Grammy. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's really cool. Listen, I love saying, hey. I got Grammy Award winner Jeff Tyza <laughs> yeah. coming in. I don't just have Jeff Tyza coming in. I have Grammy Award winning Jeff Tyza coming in. Um, okay, so uh, you've been to several Grammy Awards. The first one, um, I think the first one was with Chuck. Okay. Chuck was up for a Grammy one year, and he flew 26 people to wow. Los Angeles to be there. Oh, and I was working with him at the time, and, and we all went out. And actually, he ended up performing on the Grammys that year. He did not win that year. But we were there, and, and we were at the Grammys, and uh, it, it was in Los Angeles, and it was pretty exciting. I, I remember that. Um, then, I think, it, uh, and then in the early 80s, uh, the Tonight Show Band Project was up. Mm-hmm. It was the very first one. And the, there was a guy in, who... Uh, Lived in Buffalo, but he owned a store that used to be in Rochester. They were called Record Theater. Oh. And these were huge. <laughs> I remember Record Theater yeah. because that's where I had to stand in line for all my concert tickets right. when I was a kid. Because, see, Aaron, we always, we always sort of bu- we always bust on Aaron because she doesn't remember some of those things because she's a little <laughs> bit younger. But, um, you know, back in the day when we would go see concerts at the War Memorial, when they announced them, we would head over to Eastview Mall. Eastview Mall would was much smaller then and carpeted right. and everything. And you'd wait and that whole line down East U mall be just people waiting in line right. to buy tickets from the, cause you could only buy them from the, the machine there. Right. And so I remember well, record, record theater, theater were huge, huge stores and they had vinyl. And yep. This is before CDs and everything there was, mm-hmm. and, and you'd go into the store and they probably had like, you know, 300,000 records in the place. Wow. Um, but Lenny owned a company called Amherst records in Buffalo okay. and his, one of his first big artists was Spyro Gyra. Oh yeah. Yep. And then he signed me for my albums. Uh, And then what he would do is he would take somebody like Jeff Tyzik or Spyro Gyra. He would put their first album out. Then he would try to sign them to a major label. So I, my first album was on Amherst and then he sold it, you know, to Capitol. So I was on Capitol for two albums and then Polydor for a couple albums. And I produced a bunch of stuff for him over the years. So I went to him and he, he, um, he started in the forties selling 45s out of the trunk of his car as a salesman. <laughs> and years later, he became on, you know, he, he was friends with Clive Davis and all these record company yeah. heads. And the license plate on his Rolls Royce was EX Poor. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and he, the guy had a great sense of humor. So I went to him and I said, you know, Lenny, no one has ever recorded the Tonight Show band. He said, Let's do it. Uh, so I talked to Doc, and he had to get permission from Johnny. Yep. And so we, we recorded the, the first album, and lo and behold, it got nominated for a Grammy. So I went out to Los Angeles, and I was sitting between Lenny and Doc. And, you know, Lenny is 
sweating next to me and Doc's wringing his hands and I'm just sitting there. And this was in the pre, they always did this, these jazz categories pre-broadcast. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be darned. Tonight's your band album, Doc Severin. Doc goes up. He gets to keep the little statuette. You know, I, I got yeah. a, I got a little plaque on my wall. At yeah, home. that's cool. Uh, but that was a pretty exciting moment. Um, and it was just so thrilling to see Doc get that kind of due after his long career. And, and yeah. Lenny, I mean, he, he was just beside himself. It was so exciting. Well, in your career, you've also worked with, I mean, countless Grammy award winners. Uh, I have. Some that you worked very closely with, in fact. Right. But the third Grammy, I wanted to tell you this. <clears throat> Jill and I went to the, the third Grammy time. I, I went. I can't remember exactly the year, but I think the Tonight Show Band was up for another nomination, so I, I went to that. And that was the year Michael Jackson did Man in the Mirror. Oh, oh wow. So I'm sitting there, and there's Michael Jackson. And, and, and a lot of my heroes, like Herbie Hancock, and all sure. these people were there. And I'm like, hey, Herbie. He goes, hey, man, how you doing? I, he didn't know me, but... Like, yeah, you know. but, you know, if you're there, you're part of yeah. the industry. It's... Yeah. So it, it's, uh, yeah, I've worked with some really great people. Um, and most of the time, the really great people are actually great people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they, their reputations. Most are, of the time. Yeah. There, there are some people who are difficult Yeah, and that's just the way it is. And you figure out what right. to do, how to do what you need to do. Um, cause sometimes, I mean, I was in the studio with Tony Bennett and I had yeah. to, I had to tell him some things. You oh, know? That, that can't be <laughs> and, fun. Uh, well, it just, you know, hopefully there's some kind of mutual respect cause you're in this environment and, and you find a way to, to say something that's meaningful and important. Uh, but I've been in some situations where it doesn't always go that well. So does Tony take it okay? He was fine. He yeah. was good. Yeah. I remember, I'm not going to say the name of the band, but uh, back when I was a kid, I, I ushered at the auditorium theater. So that was, a, that was one way. They probably still do it. You could go, you could volunteer to be an usher and then you get to kind of see these shows for free. Right. I mean, you'd have to do a little bit of work at the beginning and seat people, but then your job kind of was on autopilot for the rest of the night. So you'd, you'd go to the auditorium like an hour before the doors open, and they would bring all the ushers into this room and give you your sheet as to this is going to be your section, and they want you to go into the theater and get acclimated as to where your seats are so that you can help direct people to their seats. Mm -hmm. Well, the band that was playing there was a rock band, and the lead singer had this, you know, thing that he doesn't want anybody looking at him before a, before a show. So the ushers were all instructed, do not make eye contact if the singer's up on stage while you're trying to, you know, like, this is one of the bands I really wanted to see. So, of course, I'm, I'm like, kept trying to peek up there. <laughs> but, but they, some of these guys have uh, right. some pretty weird little things that they don't want they don't want you to see them or whatever uh, and adversely there's other guys like i was just this last summer we my wife and i went to the uh, new york state fair and bad company was playing on the chevy court stage which is the free concert they you know i mean they pay these bands i don't know what they pay them but they have these free shows on the chevy court and bad company was playing with the original Paul Rogers, a singer who is an amazing singer. Mm -hmm. And this guy comes out, it's like two hours before they're going to perform. And Lisa and I are walking around and I start hearing this guy singing. He's sound checking, but instead of just, you know, 
check one, two, and he starts singing like right. acapella singing. And I'm like, man, that sounds like Paul Rogers. And sure enough, he just came out. There was, you know, a handful of people already sitting down, and he just came out and started singing for him. He was like, yeah, I thought I'd give you guys a little bit of a show before I'm going to go on later. And nice. super cool. And I'm yeah. like, this is, he's an iconic voice of rock and roll. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. But yeah, there's a lot of different personalities. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as a musician, as a conductor, composer, arranger, producer, um, trumpeter are you planning on ever doing another album where you're playing no i i stopped playing about five years ago because i i didn't feel i could uh practice enough to keep it up to the level that i'd feel comfortable performing in public and i i was just due to um writing music and conducting and studying and everything i just i didn't have the time to really put into it and i i you know i was kind of one of the things i was known for in a way is I'd be conducting a concert and then, you know, if it were a jazz concert and then with no warm, turn around, pick up the horn and just play. I mean, I would do that in concert. Well, you you need to warm up. Right. And I started to, you know, I was able to do it because I would warm up a lot before the evening would start. But I I said, you know, one night I'm going to pick this thing up and I'm not going to be proud of what comes out of the other end of it. Yeah. I decided, you know, that's it. I'm not going to do it. So I, I won't be doing that again. That's over. And I had my day, and uh, I, I think I did some, some pretty good work, and I'm proud of it, and uh, it's, it's fun. But I'm in a whole other world now in my head and the way I, the kind of music I write and, and what I work on and how I use my skills in a different way that is, uh, you know, it's very rewarding. What about uh, the way things are recorded these days? You know, I, I love to ask musicians what they feel about the difference of, say, recording something or listening to something back on vinyl versus digital. Uh, everything now, so many people are just, you know, hopping on Spotify or mm. Apple Music or something like that. And yeah. Obviously, there's a whole a whole big debate, you know, industry-wide about the fairness of listening to people's music where you're really hardly paying for it. You know, yeah. you're paying a subscription a month, but you're not really paying the artists their dues by... Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, um, I think a lot of a lot of people that appreciate what musicians go through, they'll still buy the music just kind of out of the principle of it. I'm smiling because I, I uh, some of these music rights services, you know, they you get these letters. Oh, you know, we're, we're putting your music out there and they don't even ask permission, but they have a way to license it and we're yeah. going to send you a royalty check. So I had this one company, I'm not going to mention who it is when they're out there and, you know. So after like a year and a half, I get a check in the mail. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I open it up and I got a magic marker and I wrote on it, I'm rich. <laughs> and I took a, a uh, magnet, stuck it to my refrigerator because it was three cents. <laughs> but get, yeah. Got your royalty check. I, you know, I go back, uh, I started seriously recording in the 70s, an old eight track, which was like, right. you know, six feet high, or not six feet high, it was about five feet, four feet high with the modules in it. And 
you know, I've done everything through, uh, you know, digital and uh, hard disk and, and everything. And, and all the early digital recordings were, there was a, first of all, there was a 24-track digital machine. Then Sony made a 32-track digital machine. Then they made a 48-track digital machine. And then everybody hated that stuff. And, yeah. and they started getting into more of the computer-based work. So I, I've been involved in, in the kind of most facets of how the industry has changed. Um, but... The latest recordings, I'm in a room with an orchestra. It's live. And whatever medium we're recording to, we're not overdubbing. We're not, you know, we might be doing a second take or editing sections in, but we're not going back and fixing every little thing there is. Right. And what blows my mind is if you go back and listen to uh, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, in the 70s and the 60s, for instance, or you go back and listen to the Beatles and the vocal work that they did before there was all this double tracking. And this is before they came out with all the correcting machines and everything. Right. You know, auto tune and all that stuff. I mean, the power and beauty of those voices and how they sang in tune, you know, before machines could like sort of fix everything, Yep. you know? Well, you know, like even with me playing guitar, I, I just bought a new piece of software that, I just hit a pedal on the floor and I can detune to any tuning I want without turning one uh, knob on my guitar. I can I can go a half step down, full yeah. step. I can go two full steps yeah. down. And it's like, wow, and it's real time and it sounds great, but it's all digital. But that's not <clears throat> making what you do better. It's making what you do easier. Easier, correct. Yeah, so that's, that's right. totally different than somebody who can't sing and sings through a machine yeah, and to make goes, them sound I, better. I, I cringe when I hear auto auto tune yeah. stuff. And um, but uh, vinyl's making a big comeback, and it's a nice warm sound, and people are going out and actually spending money on vinyl records again. And uh, I I just remember back to you know just not just being excited for the music, but also even the 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 cover art. Right, absolutely yeah that's when Which, a, when a cover it was it was good to go shoot a cover however you were going to do oh, it because yeah. the graphics were exciting they were wonderful it was going to help grab people so that you could say hey this is a story i'm going to tell and this is kind of the image i want you to picture that well, story starting my beautiful wife jill your cousin jill yeah has been after i love me. jill by the way yeah me too she's been after me now for five years to get the uh the, t- the uh turntable out and, oh. I, and I've been bit so Don't busy traveling. I haven't, but that's one of my projects now while I'm home for a bit. I'm going to get the turntable out because I have so many vinyl. Yeah. You know. Oh, actually get it out and put it up yeah. and play it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I actually, I, I loved Miles Davis. I, I had like 50 or 60 Miles Davis albums, but I, I remember that I bought five rare Miles Davis albums in the early 80s at this store in like Washington, D.C. And they were um, recordings he did in Europe. And I never opened them yet. They're still like plastic around them. Hmm. I got to find those. And I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't open them. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, because that stuff's getting. Yeah. Some of that stuff's worth some money. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, the vinyl, the you know, CDs, kind of. I'm kind of. I'm kind of glad we're either going back to vinyl, or we're staying <laughs> with digital online because having all the CDs, I never kept them. They were always scratched up and and. Yeah. The other thing uh, that I always think is important, and I think it's lost on a lot of the younger people now because they're listening to music online, 
and may, I wonder how you feel about this, but when you listen to certain albums, now it, it doesn't necessarily just have to be rock albums. In fact, probably when you put your albums together, you had a reason uh, for which track was going to be track one, track right. two, so on and so forth. Uh, and whether that was you were telling a story by the by how the uh, tracks were mm -hmm. listed right. or if it were, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, they don't listen to this stuff. They listen right. to songs as one-offs, right. whereas I grew up listening to, you had to listen to a whole album. Like when a song ended, right away in my head, I was already hearing the next song because I'm used to hearing the right. album when my wife goes on a digital thing and puts it in random mode, I flip out. I'm like, <laughs> no, we're not listening to it on random. <laughs> no, it's, it's true because it, uh, an album was a story. Right. It was a story that the artist wanted to tell through these different pieces. And uh, when I first had my record contracts uh, in 1980, normally you got a, a two-album deal. So mm -hmm. you would go and record an album and they would get it out into the marketplace and see what it was going to do. And you were guaranteed a second album. And then you'd see what happened with the second, whether they guarantee a third. Um, but that's changed over time. So, so many times that to where it's down to like when the record companies were still really involved, you'd get one single out. And if the single didn't do well, you're done. Oh, so you didn't get the big projects anymore. Right. Yeah. Which I think is why guys like Prince, you know, just took, their own record company, you know, matters into their own hands the way they wanted to do their projects and insisted that they be these, these stories. We're not going to have anybody tell us what to, what to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of them went that way. Um, well, I just want to talk to people uh, real quick. I, I got a little rapid fire thing I want to do with you before we All right. finish this up. Um, but I do want to talk to people about what's going on this weekend. So yeah. On the 24th and 25th, so January 24th and 25th, which happened to be this Friday and Saturday at the Eastman Theater, right. the RPO is, uh, with Jeff Tyzik conducting, is doing a tribute to Garth Fagan dance. Right. I, I love Garth. Uh, I, uh, wow. In the 70s, I, you know, it just blows my mind how long ago it was. I was a student at Eastman, and we had a summer festival called the Arrangers Holiday. And all these arrangers from New York City would come in, and guys that normally wrote, like, car commercials and stuff. But it's like their big chance to have an orchestra, and they would do these really creative concerts. And one summer, Garth Fagan, who then company was then called the Bottom of the Bucket. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what it was called. Uh, and we were on stage with an orchestra playing while they danced to this really whacked out Miles Davis piece. And I, it was the first time I experienced like an orchestra on stage with dancers and Garth's work. And I just, it was, it just blew me away totally. And then I, of course, over the years went to see his work. And when I first got with the RPO, um, I was in touch with him and I wanted to do something with him. And I kind of scared myself off because I didn't feel at the time that I could do something up to the level of his work. Mm. Um, so last year, uh, I, the orchestra had, had spoken with Garth's people about doing a project and someone from the management at RPO said, would you like to work with Garth? And I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah of for course. like 50 years. <laughs> So Garth and I got together with uh, Bill Ferguson, who uh, is, it works with him, and, and our guy at the RPO, Eric Guess, and our artistic vice president. And we had a conversation with him, and we scoped out the entire concert in one meeting. 
And uh, so we're going to be together. Uh, we're going to be performing on stage in between when they dance, but also while they're dancing. And it's a really interesting repertoire. Uh, it's gonna, there are going to be some young children dancing as well who are part of the school. And it's, it's going to oh, be Garth fantastic. Fagan was, uh, I mean, he's been very famous in, in the world of choreography and dancing for a long time. Mm-hmm. But in recent years, he he choreographed all the the uh, lion king yes. uh production right. so that's uh for for the younger people out there that's that's something to yeah. see um there are still tickets available they are going fast so i checked today there there's uh there's still tickets you can still get good seats but uh not for long yeah uh, they're almost sold out it's going to be an amazing experience i'm looking forward to it. we're going to have three rehearsals and this is an example where normally when they're dancing they're dancing to recorded music. Right. So now we're going to be performing live. that oh, music live. Everything live, And right. it's spontaneous and things happen. And That's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing experience. So I, I don't want to uh, leave without t- telling you my Florida story. So Jeff was perf- uh, performing with the, um, is it the Naples? It was the Naples Philharmonic, yeah. yeah. And they have a really beautiful hall there. So it's not that huge, but it's 1,400 it's really, seats. But it's really nice. nice. Yeah. And uh, I called Jeff because we were down there too, vacationing. And I said, uh, you know, oh, we'd like to come see. You. And he goes, oh, you know what? I'm gonna. He goes, I've got some tickets for you. I'll, I'll have them at will call or whatever. So, Lisa and I went. Now, this was a while ago. This was probably ten years at least. or so ago. <laughs> at least. And um, so, to I'm gonna say this without, with no disrespect and without being, uh, without sounding wrong here, but the median age of the folks going to the Naples Philharmonic, it, it's an older crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and Lisa and I are, were a younger couple and we're showing up. We were still on time, but we were just making it. And older crowds typically plan ahead and get there like a half an hour prior to when most people would get there. Mm-hmm. So Jeff had was gracious enough to give us these like, the premier seats, you know, there's a, there's a spot in a hall, right? It's like probably 10 rows up in the middle where you hear everything perfect. And, and Jeff got us those seats. And I just remember, okay, I'm looking at the ticket and I see, okay, we're in this aisle and, and there's all these folks and they're all comfortable and sitting and we got to get to the middle. And the, we just had so many angry eyes at us yeah. as we were sitting down, but it was such a wonderful night. It was, if, if you have not been out to see Jeff perform any of his pops work, it's really great stuff. Um, your Christmas show is talked mm. about even in the summertime, people talk about, going to your Christmas show. It's, it's an amazing concert. Uh, or holiday pops or yeah, whatever, sure. you know. Well, a lot because we, we have, uh, for 25 years, we've had this high school festival chorale made up of a, around 200 kids from 37 different schools in seven county area, including city. And they these kids come together for a week where they do two rehearsals and six performances and they spend all this time together and they're all from, you know, different kinds of parts of the community and they, they get to know each other and they, they get to, you know, be an experience, you know, love through music and, and all this incredible emotion or, and, and to be on stage with a guy like Don Potter, who was there in yeah. the past two years um, and to 
to sing with one of the greatest orchestras in the world in one of the greatest theaters in the world. It's, it's a life-changing experience for them. And I think people, uh, that's one of the reasons people love to come to that concert. I, we've been doing that for 25 years now. Yeah, and I've and Jeff also did. They had the RPO out on a barge on the uh, Erie Canal uh, in Fairport. And I think it was like for like Canal Days or it yeah. might have been like the first Long Canal Days. Ago. or yeah. Oh, that was just really great. So if you get a chance to... To see Jeff or, or just see the Rochester Philharmonic, uh, whether it's their their symphony series yeah. or their, or, uh, would that be the symphony series? Yeah, it's the, the Philharmonic the, series is yeah. all of the classical concerts. <clears throat> yep. And then there's a pop series. Yep, and, and that's you, the same musicians, yeah, typically. same musicians. And if you if you have younger kids, at Hochstein, we do something called Orchidstra, oh. which oh. are these wonderful concerts for kids from four to like, you know, eight years old. And, and they're, they're participatory, you know, they get to be involved and they're these really neat concerts. And then, you know, oftentimes you'll find the orchestra doing community concerts that are for free around, yep. around you know, in Greece or in the city or in Irondequoit or someplace. Uh, you can look on the website. There's a lot of things the orchestra does that are free for the community as well. And so, yeah. they do a lot of the, the John Williams stuff too. It's true. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you hear all the, the Star Wars and the right. Supermans. And, the, and now they accompany kind of films. I mean, they have done Star yes. Wars, but they just did Harry Potter last yeah. week. Yep. Super cool. So it's, it's yeah, we're, we, we, we have something for just about everybody. I would say. You know? Yeah, so make sure you, uh, you know, visit the, well, if you're in Dallas or Oregon or Detroit, <laughs> yeah. just look Before. up when Jeff's going to be playing again. Also, you know, when we talk about musicians and their work and how you can find it online, yeah, sure, you could listen to to Jeff's music on, on different streaming services, but you can also go to Amazon and you can get uh, your work. You can, you can get your albums. Really? Oh yes, you can. I haven't looked. (laughs) Yes, you can. In fact, you should, because there are so many awesome comments about, about your music on there. Wow. Yeah. And all over the world, you know, um, I was, there's, there's a whole bunch of them really cool stuff to, I would, I would, if it were me, I'd be interested to, Mm. to see those things because it's, it's really nice stuff. Um, we don't usually play out to uh, something other than the Grease and Glamour <laughs> music. But By the tonight, way, is that you playing guitar in Grease and Glamour no. music? No. Oh, okay. I just wanted to. <laughs> it would be cool, though. That would be. I, I, but, we're, but we will play out to this, so. I mean, this stuff's so great. You got to check it out online. Um, anyway, this is the Grease and Glamour podcast. I'm Mark Fierbacher. You know, this is... Uh, Universal Imports of Rochester. That's our company. Uh, we have sales and service of import automobiles. We do everything. We do domestics. We do Asian European cars. We sell. We service. We have a body shop. Um, even if you need advice, if you've got a kid in college and you want another uncle or a brother, you can call and I'll be that call for Uncle you. Mark. Or if you get stuck on the Major Deegan Expressway <laughs> in New York, <laughs> right, call Mark. That's right. Yep. Yep. In any of the boroughs of uh, New York. <laughs> um, but the Grease and Glamour podcast is just a way for us to get the word out about Universal Imports. Uh, and so visit universalimports.com for all your car needs. And please share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, talk about it, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That would always be nice. Five stars would always be great. If you feel like leaving anything less than five stars, ask us about it first, and then we'll change your mind to leaving a five star. Anyway, uh, until a couple weeks from now, I guess it'll be February when we do our next one. Yeah. Yep. In the meantime, 
Enjoy this music by Jeff Tyzik. And Jeff, thank you so much again yeah, for being for with us. My pleasure. Thank you. It was awesome. Sure. Thank you. So, all right. Until next time, see you later. So there it was. That was our episode with Jeff Tyzik. And I just wanted to quickly, as a final note um, on that, I didn't get a chance to talk about it in the podcast, um, but... You know, Jeff talks about, uh, you know, you're throwing a stone into the lake and watching the ripples and you don't really know where the ripples are going to end or how they're going to affect um, people or things negatively or positively. But, you know, my father was um, a a big fan of Jeff's and uh, was just so happy that Jeff was a is a customer of ours and a friend of ours and. Um, for my father's birthday one year, uh, I had called Jeff or, or he was in with his car. I don't remember exactly how that went, but we had the whole staff, uh, 20 of us lined up outside in the parking lot. And as my dad pulled in that morning, Jeff stood there and conducted the whole universal imports organization to sing happy birthday to my father. And that probably was one of the best birthday presents my father ever received. He just was, he, he talked about that all the time. So, um, that just gives you some insight as to what kind of guy Jeff Tyzik is. And, uh, we're just so grateful and so thankful that we were able to have him on the podcast. And I'm super thankful to be able to call him brother Jeff. So anyway, um, until next time, we'll see you. Thanks.